Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my absolute favorite guests, David Schultz of Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. Hopefully you got out for part of it today. Uh, a little bit, yes. Uh, dodged a little rain, but uh, I did. I did, and I started cleaning out my, um, my backyard garden today. There you go. And speaking of garden, I, I, I think that there's a breakthrough that we need to share with our listeners because I think, I think we, we went over – the crisis last week. Yes. Your uh, your 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 probably your lone gardening failure ever. For those who don't know, and we've talked about it more than uh, more than a few times, uh, David Schulz is an extraordinary gardener. I mean, you are every you, everything grows for you. It's it's remarkable. Everything but my chia pets. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, who are in in the heads of uh, was it President Obama and President Trump? Correct, correct. And our first round was a failure, and so we redid it because you came to my office about a week ago, and it was a couple of weeks ago. And there was like you had, you had this bucket, that's right, this huge bucket of like you know the kind of thing you put tools in. And it's like with water and this blobs. They, I'm like, what is this? That's right. And, and it was you were soaking your chia pets. Yes, we were soaking it to get them ready again. So so now we have some some chia growing on it. But the joke is, it's kind of like pattern baldness at this point. And, <laughs> uh, and so, um, well, you can do the comb over with Trump. What we were thinking a comb over, something like that, or or I was hoping someone could get me a, a Make America Great hat that's like chia pet size, and I could put on top of it or something. Um, but but I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, 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 there's a woman named Miriam who's who's my administrative assistant, um, who has actually been the person to save to save me on this. Um, and so and so she she has been um, the person who's gotten the the chias to grow. And so, Miriam, if you're listening out there, thank you very much. You get the credit. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I, I look forward next time to hopefully seeing uh, a f- hair on, on both President Obama and President Trump. That's right. <laughs> chia hair or whatever it is. It's, what is it, like grass seed or something? It's, well, or? chia, it's kind of like an herb or something like that. And so, um, and so we, will, we, will, we, will, we will see how it is. Like I said, at this point, we've got it kind of growing on the sides and not on the top. And so it's, it, it, like I said, it has the pattern baldness look to it. And so, so we're thinking of what we also might need to get is, is I, mean, I won't mention the brand name, you know, a brand name product that helps um, hair growth on, on top or something like that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, listen, uh, so many things to talk about here. But, you know, I do want to ask you about something because I know that you actually wrote the original report for the city of Minneapolis. There was a mayoral forum for the city of Minneapolis today, and, and there were you know, lots of candidates and it sounds like Minneapolis apparently is going to have another ranked choice election in which you don't just vote for your first choice. You also vote for your second, right? And third. And third. Okay. Basically, can you – and can you explain – it was so complicated. Right. The last election, the last mayoral election, they didn't have the results for several days. There were also – and Jonathan Lowe, our studio coordinator, reminded me of one of the reasons that why there were so many candidates. I think the filing fee was about – 
$10 or it something ridiculous. We had 38 candidates last time. That was uh, it. <laughs> right. And, and since then, I'm forgetting what the exact um, um, number is, but I think they have raised it now. But please don't quote me on this. I think it was something along the lines of, of they've raised the fee to like $100 or something like that, or or um, a certain number of signatures. And, and again, don't quote me on what they finally did, because I remember I testified before the Charter Commission on this a couple of years ago and said that, because I think at one point they were thinking of just imposing a fee and saying, you've got to pay an amount. And I said, you can't do that. Um, 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 there's, there's Supreme Court cases that say that you have to give a backup in terms of number of signatures. And so, and so if there's somebody from Minneapolis actually out there who, who knows the exact um, number at this point, they can text you or, or, or send me an email or something. It's some, it's some dollar amount to get on or number of signatures, but it's a greater percentage or um, dollar amount than it was four years ago. Okay. And, and again, explain for us how it works. So I go to the ballot box. Right. And, and I vote for my first Second and third choice? Correct, correct. So you get to pick, select up to three candidates. And so let's say... And you rank them. You rank them. And so, so let's say you, you, you want to have, um, let's say, um, Amy is your first choice, so, uh, who you really want to be mayor. So you, you would cast a vote for her. Um, and then there's going to be a second column that asks you, okay, who's your second choice? And let's say at that point it's Maria is your second choice. And then you can also vote for a third. Now, you, can only, you, could, you could just cast for one or two or three, but you have up to three people that you can vote for. And so how ranked choice voting works is that, is that if they total up all the votes, and if somebody gets a majority of the vote right in the first round, then the election's over. Election's over. Um, let's say Amy gets the most votes, then it's all over. Okay, let's say nobody gets 50% plus one of the votes. The, the person who came in last um, um, is taken off the ballot, um, and their votes are then transferred to um, the, the second choice um, for, for people who voted for that person. So let's say, if, um, let's say um, Peter comes okay. in last. Um, people who voted for Peter might have said, well, my second choice is Amy or my second choice is Maria. And so we'll keep eliminating candidates at the bottom until we get to a point to where um, somebody eventually gets 50% plus one of the votes. Got it. Okay. And the thing that, that, was, <laughs> thing that was so hard last time around is that there were so many candidates, it just took forever. It did, because there were 38 candidates, right. Um, now, now, there's a few things, and just to explain, there's a few reasons, uh, theories behind why ranked choice voting is out there. Okay. Some argue that what ranked choice voting does is allow everybody to actually cast a vote for their first choice. Um, um, and say that, well, I really want this person, um, but if that person doesn't get elected, uh, then here's my second choice. And so supposedly helps that. Second, um, it's supposed to expand the range of choices that individuals have for voting, which means it supposedly makes it um, um, possible for, let us say, third or fourth, or in the case of Minneapolis, the 38th candidate, um, to actually have some possibility. So it's supposed to give more choice um, to voters um, and produce a, a broader range of candidates. And when I did the original report, so I'm trying to think what the first year was. So this is 17. The first year, I think it was, I'm sorry, I've got to bring it back, eight years ago, so it would have been, what, 09. So um, I think, yeah, 09? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we're nine. Yeah, it's an eight, six, 16, nine, ten. Yeah, okay, oh nine or oh eight. Yeah, oh nine. Um, the first time it was imp- implemented, uh, the 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 elections bureau in in Minneapolis asked me to evaluate it, um, and the conclusion that I gave back then was to say that uh, that it, its results were inconclusive back then in terms of whether or not it fulfilled its objectives in terms of giving people a broader range of candidates, a broader range of choices, et cetera, et cetera. Four years ago, when it was um, um, redone again, there's, 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 it's still mixed in terms of whether or not it's, it's really producing all the results it's supposed to. But we also saw that there were some anomalies. You know, the fact that, for example, um, 38 people ran um, in terms of, of who were out there, um, that was kind of a problem that just never materialized before. Um, so so I, I would argue that nationwide, when we look at other cities that have had ranked choice voting... And, and are there a lot? There, there are increasingly more. We've got places like San Francisco, Cambridge, Massachusetts, quite a few... Uh, really? I would, I would say... I would say that what we've really found is that it's the liberal enclaves um, that have adopted ranked choice voting. Um, and there, there seems to be some um, um, inconclusive evidence at this point regarding whether or not it increases, again, political participation, um, creates um, um, opportunities for more non-traditional candidates. Um, the, the jury is essentially out. But flip side, there's no evidence um, that it creates voter confusion. The first election, there were problems in Minneapolis where I found an unusually high percentage of voter error. Um, but that seems to, with education, be solving some problems. And then second, there are some who have argued that, that this hurts um, um, people of color who are, or let's say minority candidates running for office. Again, there seems to be no evidence for that. And, and so I would describe ranked choice voting as an interesting experiment. Um, but, but this is where I think it's going to be fascinating in Minneapolis this year, because I don't think at this point we really have a favorite. You know, we have, I would still say that Betsy Hodges as the incumbent arguably the favorite, um, although, you know, with two resignations or firings yesterday, you know, that, that, that raises questions about her campaign. But this could be a campaign where we see some evidence of, of candidates going out and trying to appeal to uh, people and say, okay, if I'm not your first choice, make me your second choice. Um, and so, so this could be an interesting campaign where you've got Betsy Hodges as, as the incumbent, argue the favorite, I don't think, and you live in Minneapolis, um, I think, if I remember correctly, um, I don't think there is a clear second candidate to, to Hodgers. There's about two or three people who I think all have, have chances, and that's where I think we could have a situation where, again, nobody gets 50% plus, and that second choice hmm. becomes really critical. And, and one other question, why, I mean, you said that this is being embraced by liberal enclaves, and certainly I think anybody would describe San Francisco and Cambridge, Massachusetts as liberal enclaves. Right. What, what, what's it supposed to achieve? I guess that's what I'm not quite sure I get. Yeah, okay. And, and again, there's been a variety of different arguments out there. One is, again, the claim that um, it'll increase political participation because people have, have a greater sense of choices in terms of who they could vote for. Again, mixed evidence of that. Two um, is an argument that says that it 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 um, um, encourages people to vote for non-traditional candidates. You know, you know, beyond sort of let's say you know the two front runners. 
you know, what it tries to address is what I call the Nader effect. And what I mean by the Nader effect is, you know, go back to 2000, many people said that, well, gosh, um, had, had people not voted for Ralph Nader, Al Gore would have received enough votes in Florida to win that state and become president of the United States. And a lot of times people are hesitant to vote for a third-party candidate for fear that if they cast a vote for that third-party candidate, um, it effectively means that they're helping the candidate who they least like. And so ranked choice voting is supposed to address some of that by getting, getting a, putting us in a situation to say, okay, my real first choice candidate, just to go back to Florida 2000, is, is Ralph Nader. Um, but, but just in case he doesn't win the state, my second choice um, okay. is Al Gore. And so if Ralph Nader comes in last, my votes get transferred over to him. And so it's supposed to ad- address that problem. And again, there's some mixed evidence um, that, that it does that. Now, what's really interesting is, is again, this was, as I mentioned before, it's generally embraced you know, in the liberal enclaves. You know, with, and I think there was the hope by a lot of the progressives that it would create incentives to elect um, even more progressive candidates. Um, again, not really sure on that, but what I do think it's interesting is to see is that it hasn't necessarily produced incentives to elect, let us say, um, more conservative candidates or, or, or Republicans, and maybe simply because Cambridge, San Francisco, Minneapolis, I mean, there are not many Republicans. Um, and so, so it's a great question you're asking here, why embraced mostly by the liberal enclaves? I'm not completely sure in terms of that answer. All right. Well, listen, uh, interesting stuff, and I just didn't want to ask you about it because obviously we're going to be waiting through hopefully not as many candidates as as in the past, but it is obviously something that's different that I think still there is some element of confusion to it. There is, I was going to just throw one more thing in here again, is what's really been making it confusing, I think, in Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, which has it also, is that for their city elections, they can use ranked choice voting. But when it comes to presidential federal um, and even state legislative races, they can't use it. And so this has created kind of a nightmare for the election bureaus in those two cities because they have to flip back and forth between ranked choice voting and the very traditional format in terms of voting. Okay. All right. Well, listen, uh, we are chatting, of course, with the one and only Professor David Schultz. We do have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the latest uh, from the Trump administration, uh, clear evidence that Steve Bannon apparently uh, is not uh, no longer sort of in the inner sanctum, apparently. And it is uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner who are guiding a lot of Trump's strategy. Uh, So we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 826 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, uh, just mentioned before the break, uh, increasing word uh, out of the White House that Steve Bannon, uh, who many credit with uh, orchestrating, uh, you know, being one of the key players behind President Trump's extraordinary win in November, uh, is is really facing sort of is sort of on the outs. Uh, he's still obviously an advisor to the president, but he's no longer on the National Security Council, and that the people who really have the most say and the most influence in terms of their voice being heard by President Trump are his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his daughter, Ivanka Trump. What are your thoughts about that? This is really actually quite interesting because what we're starting to see now at approximately, what, about about the 80th, 90-day of the Trump administration 
is really a pretty significant change. And it's a change not just in terms of all the issues that he ran on that he seems to have reversed, you know, in terms of, you know, um, saying we weren't going to intervene in Syria, but we did. Uh, he was going to label China as a currency manipulator. Um, we're not going to do that. And so a lot of this, you know, he's changed on. But even, even within his last two or three weeks of administration, I, you know, I, and I talked about this um, in a blog of mine, he seems to be what I call kind of normalizing his presidency. And what I mean by that is that the, the forces that I think generally constrain presidents of the United States, especially in foreign policy, to where they, they operate within certain types of boundaries, we're starting to see that occurring with Trump. Um, and that, and that you know, we're seeing him adopt much more conventional positions that you would expect of presidents of the United States, um, perhaps more interventionist, and all this is sort of going against Bannon. I think that's one thing going on. The second thing that's going on here is there's been a war within his administration, obviously Kushner versus for Bannon. And the way I describe it is that Steve Bannon um, really wants to destroy what he calls the deep state, the administrative state. But at the same time, if you engage in that war against the deep state, um, you make it impossible for Donald Trump to get anything accomplished. And I think at the end of the day, there is an interest, I think, among Trump and among his children and son-in-law to actually get some things accomplished. And to do that, you probably can't follow the approach um, of, of Bannon, because to get things accomplished, what do you have to do? actually control and work with the administrative state. So I'm starting to detect a, a shift in the Trump presidency um, that, that I don't know how long it's going to last. Um, but, but this, I think, is pretty significant because it's looking like a Trump presidency now that, again, use the phrase, is going to normalize more. There's a great piece, I think it was in yesterday's Washington Post, that made a similar sort of statement in terms of saying that Trump is becoming um, more conventional now in many ways. All right. Well, and, and that, that obviously, he still, to a large extent, is relatively unpredictable, though. Exactly. Um, although perhaps he's going to become more unpredictably normal, if that makes any sense. And I know it's exactly what you're saying here. Now, there are still some things that are very unusual about him. I mean, there's still no question the fact that, that the Twitter presidency is, is different. But then again, you know, take us back 70 or 80 years, whatever, maybe 90 years, 80 years, um, the, the radio presidency of FDR was completely completely new. So, so we're clearly shifting in terms of that, in terms of communication technologies. Um, but two, I think still the issue becomes whether or not there's a coherence to the Trump presidency in terms of foreign policy, like with, with North Korea, with Syria, with China, with NATO. Um, um, it's still not clear that there is a Trump doctrine in the way that previous presidents try to articulate one. All right. And obviously we've seen some, as you mentioned, those changes in terms of policies, you know, the positions that he had during the campaign, uh, no intervention in Syria, certainly intervention, the changes in China, a lot of situations like that. We do have to take a break to give you some weather. When we come back, though, we want to continue talking about this because there has been a development. North Korea tried to uh, – uh, had another missile launch that failed. And we want to talk about the implications of that. Obviously, the president making a, a number of statements about North Korea in the past few days. Uh, a lot more on that. And then also there is uh, a continued speculation that Minnesota could lose a congressional seat after the uh, 2020 census. Uh, so more with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Well, the North Koreans uh, attempted a ballistic missile launch and it was apparently an utter failure. It blew up almost immediately. I have seen a, a a number of press accounts that suggest it, it's not clear if the U.S. apparently has been monitoring the North Koreans' ballistic missile uh, attempts. And there has been a, apparently a covert attempt by the U.S. to try and electronically disrupt uh, these missile launches. Um the U.S. Uh, the statement from the president is, uh, according to the New York Times, um, in an unusually worded statement that left hanging the question of whether the United States played any role in the latest launch's failure. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said, "Quote: The president and his military team are aware of North Korea's most recent unsuccessful missile missile launch. The president has no further comment. Uh, either way, I guess it failed. It failed." Um, and obviously, uh, the timing for Kim Jong Un somewhat, of, certainly, of an embarrassment as the U.S. has uh, carriers moving in that area. Right. Also, on the 105th anniversary um, of his grandfather, who was the founder of the North Korean state, so this is a pretty big to do today. Um, and the missile failure, whether by their design or the U.S. design, is interesting. Um, and, and this is just a fascinating, I think, thing going on in Korea right now, North Korea, because a couple of things I think are clear. You know, one of them is that, that the sort of what's, what's called the strategic patience, you know, in terms of sort of working with North Korea probably, well, hasn't been successful in terms of discouraging them from, from trying to develop a, um, a nuclear weapon and, and from developing a, a missile that can potentially strike Guam and eventually mainland United States. And, of course, the United States doesn't, doesn't want that. But it's also not clear, you know, since that policy has not worked, it's also not clear what an alternative policy is for the United States, that we probably need the assistance of China, but it's not even clear that, that China has that much leverage over North Korea. So this is kind of an interesting thing to watch at this point in the sense that you're right, we have almost what a flotilla you know, heading to North Korea. Um, whether or not that is a good idea, uh, I, I leave to the military people in terms of you know, whether that's a smart idea to try to intimidate the North Korean regime. But there's clearly a lot of tension there and clearly an effort by the Trump administration um, to rethink policy. And again, this is fascinating because this was a Trump presidency that said that we weren't going to get involved in, in matters around the world. And now the engagement in, in North Korea uh, or, or against North Korea goes against that as does the statements by the Trump administration that are saying to China that if you help us contain North Korea, there'll be a good, good trade deal for you. So, there, so Trump's starting to see the connections between um, our linkages in foreign policy. Again, whether or not they form a coherent policy that's effective, and especially in, with North Korea as an alternative to what we've been doing, Again, yet to be seen. Right, and and, and again, the, the situation is: what is the, what is the what is the U.S. role, and what is the U.S. strategy going forward? Exactly, and and, cl- 
and, and a few things we have to keep in mind also is the fact that South Korea is, is, is an ally of ours. And to what extent do we do anything that potentially could endanger South Korea? Because um, the, the distance from um, North Korean missiles to get to Seoul, South Korea, is not very far. If I remember correctly, um, also, there's a major dam not far from, from Seoul that if hit would wind up flooding, flooding, flooding Seoul out. And I suspect that those who are listening in the audience, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, tonight we still have what, some Korean War veterans, you know, who might be oh, listening. Of course, yes. It, um, um, they might be very, very, you know, aware of, 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 the, of the dangers of, of North Korea and of the tensions there and, and, and sort of the geography in terms of, um, of, of what's going on there. And so this, this becomes, I think, um, a dangerous game of, game of chicken that's going on right now where both the Trump administration and the North Korean government seem to be raising tensions. And we, we, we know that the North Korean leadership seems to be somewhat unpredictable, and we know that Donald Trump seems to be un- unpredictable. And so this creates a recipe for potentially something that could go wrong along the line. Obviously, uh, you know, a a lot of questions here and the president kind of keeping everyone guessing Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, and one of the issues and you've brought this up before is just uh, and this goes back to the advisors of, of, you know, that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner seem to be the the most important advisors at this point on foreign policy as well. There's actually been several reports that suggest that the airstrike in retaliation for the chemical gas used on uh, Syrian civilians was, in fact, uh, a direct result of Ivanka Trump being upset about, you know, those images that were upsetting to all of us, right. uh, seeing, you know, the, the images of children who, who had been killed by these airstrikes. Uh, so the Syrian policy also is not clear because in, in striking ISIS and in striking, uh, you know, in terms of retaliating for the uh, chemical weapons right. attacks, you He's hitting on two factions in Syria that are actually fighting against each other. Exactly. And it's not clear if we were to take out um, Assad, um, who takes over, what's the alternative, you know, what's the broader game plan or strategy over there? You know, that when we, when we took out the, the, the Taliban um, in Afghanistan and Hussein in Iraq, um, the goal was to sort of create stable democracies over there and to eliminate terrorism. And in fact, the deep stabilization over there has created more problems. And the destabilization that's going on in Syria right now is also creating that, that room for, for ISIS. And so, so we're, we're in kind of a proverbial rock versus a hard place, is that Assad is not desirable, ISIS is not desirable. Maybe I could throw in another hard place here, um, is the fact that there's also no viable, I'd say, um, civilian um, authority to take over with him. The, the strike made a lot of people feel good, um, short-term, but a longer-term strategy in terms of what are we supposed to do and what's the next step is not there. And look, it's been over a week since we did the missile strike, and there doesn't seem to be anything emerging. At some point, I, I know our hearts bleed you know, f- for the children in, um, over there, but we probably need to be deferring to military experts in terms of helping to craft a broader policy 
and not just sort of have a knee-jerk reaction in terms of, 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 of bombings. All right. Well, listen, we have to take a quick break here, but um, in the final ones, I want to ask you um, after the break your thoughts about these continued reports that it looks like Minnesota could lose a congressional seat here in the next uh, few years. Actually, would that be after the 2020 sure. census? And then also just uh, some quick thoughts on the legislature, which sure. is wrapping up without having really done too much yet. <laughs> okay. More with David Schultz after this. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. All right, Esme Murphy, along with David Schultz, some final thoughts here. Uh, let me ask you first about uh, continuing reports uh, that, that Minnesota could lose a congressional seat uh, after the next census. I know that that was a concern in, after the 2010 census, and we just barely made it by, I think, a few thousand votes. Exactly. Um, why is this such a possibility? While Minnesota's population is increasing, it's not increasing as quickly and as rapidly as places such as Arizona, um, Nevada, um, Texas, Florida, California, and the Southwest. And so even though we will have more people in the state in 2020 when the census occurs as opposed to, to 2010, our rate of growth um, isn't enough. And remember, and so, so, so that's one of the issues. Second, remember, there's only a finite number of, of House of Representatives seats. There are 435. And so those have to – now, the Congress could add more, but they're not going to. And so, so basically what we have to do is fig, as a nation is take the number of the population of the United States, divide it by the number of um, um, congressional seats, and that's going to get us some sense of – of, of how many seats each state has. Now, I remember doing about, I think about four weeks ago, I actually did a, a, a talk, and the state demographer was present um, at the time, and, and we talked about this, and she said that barring something very unusual, it's more than likely that we're going to lose a seat, which means we would be down to um, seven congressional seats as opposed to the current eight that we have, which also means we would have one less electoral vote um, in Congress, too, because the number of electoral votes we have for the presidency is equal to the size of our total congressional delegation. This, If we're going to lose a seat, this is going to be fascinating to watch in 2021 when the legislature um, draws the, tries to draw the congressional lines, or more likely when the state Supreme Court does it, because we're going to have to eliminate a congressional seat, which means one of the incumbents is going to be out of a job. All right. And then obviously you get the, the conflict also between sort of the rural and urban and where do you cut it? And, right. And who, it's who, more likely what's going to happen, it's going to come out of the rural simply because the population growth is in the Twin Cities and in the Twin Cities suburbs. The, the, the rural Minnesota is emptying out. Now, there's, so part of it's going to be who, who controls the legislature and the governorship uh, at that point, if they're going to do it, uh, or, or what the composition of the Supreme Court looks like at that point in terms of drawing it. But the odds are that the seat is going to come out of rural Minnesota, which means that the possibilities could be um, Rick Nolan's seat, um, if he's still in the legislature, I mean in Congress. It could be um, Colin Peterson. It could be Tim Waltz. Again, we know some of them um, are, are, you know, Tim Waltz has declared he's running for governor. But those are the likely ones that we're seeing possibly could come from some, some, rur from rural area of the state. And that means... 
um, we're going to see congressional districts in rural Minnesota covering even a greater amount oh. of geography than they do. Think about Colin Peterson's right now. Which is it, sprawling. It's sprawling. It goes As is Rick from, Nolan's. It, and Boland, they're both huge. But Colin Peterson goes from, goes from, from Canada down to the Iowa border. I, he's got a pilot's license. He has to fly um, to parts of his district. And so those are the two most likely, I think, in terms of seeing um, significant um, changes. And so we're going to see rural Minnesota have even less influence um, in, the state of, in the state of Minnesota, both with legislative seats, but mostly for congressional. Um, they're going to have um, um, fewer people to represent them. That's pretty significant. All right. Uh, Let's talk about the legislature. It's winding down here, and they've got to start winding up if they're going to get things done. Exactly. They have approximately one month to go before the end of regular session. And even though they've passed some of the, the big budget bills, there is an enormous difference of opinion between what the Republicans want and what Governor Dayton wants. And even though, again, it looks like they're making progress, the real agreement is, is far apart. And, 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 and so the, the odds are increasingly growing, as typical for the last, I don't know, decade or almost two decades, that we're probably going to move towards special session yet again, that we're not going to be done by that May deadline. And then, of course, the talk will be in terms of whether or not we can get the job done by by July 1st before potentially running a new budget year. But we have a whole bunch of issues out there that have yet to be resolved. Among the things that I think for most Minnesotans that's at the top of the list is, guess what, is real ID. We don't have that resolved yet in terms of that's pretty significant for us being able to fly. Um, I think we have issues in terms of um, the tax bill. We've got issues hanging out there in terms of um, it was supposed to be the, the transportation session again. There's no agreement on that. So there's a lot of things um, that haven't passed. The only thing that's notable that we could say that's really passed so far is is what? We can buy liquor on Sunday. We can buy liquor on Sunday, which I guess is going to happen very soon. Soon. And in the case of Certix in Minneapolis, it happened several weeks ago. Right. Um, <laughs> but he's paying a price for that, too. Right. Although it, I, I guess it's gotten rolled back. It's now it's only um, – I think it's going to be – Seven or eight days that he's out of business, yeah, uh, or can't originally like thirty days or something. Like yeah, that it was originally? it was pretty steep there. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's not. Um, I, I don't think you want to sort of flout the uh, city of Minneapolis or any city's <laughs> liquor laws or liquor license laws right now when when you've got uh, that when that's a, a, a huge chunk of, of your business. It's you know one has to think that that they wouldn't risk going to a special session yeah, just because of the consequences. And I think the consequences, the people who are the most to lose, I would think, are the Republican legislators because Mark Dayton's not going to be around anymore. Exactly. And his lieutenant governor is not running for governor either. So, so, the, so with the Republicans controlling both houses of the legislature, failure to reach agreement, whether it's just on – I don't think session. I think missing the deadline for session, um, the sting is out there anymore. I think Minnesotans have almost gotten used to the idea that they're going into overtime. I think the bigger problem is if we go past that July first deadline and we have to go into a partial government shutdown again. That's that's the real big issue, and and this makes it interesting because would Governor Dayton be willing to hold really firm with the idea of saying that he's going to force the Republicans? Um, into a position where either they do what he wants or put them into um, 
um, a partial government shutdown of which the Democrats can then use that argument next year um, against them, and so uh, Republicans. And I'm starting to think that's a possible scenario for the Democrats to force that special, uh, to force a, a partial shutdown to really get at the Republicans. Right, and, and we shall see. But obviously, the, the consequences and the anger and the frustration that happened the last time around. Uh, there were consequences. There were consequences. Absolutely. Exactly. All right. Well, as always, uh, David Schultz, always a pleasure. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. No problem. And happy Easter to everybody. Absolutely. Happy Easter to all of those, who, to you and to your family and to all those who do celebrate Easter and also Passover. And uh, hoping that uh, this is a great holiday weekend for everyone. Great. Thank you. All thank right. You. Absolutely. The one and only David Schultz also. I highly advise that uh, you tune in and, and check out David Schultz's blog. Schultz's take always has, you know, just great analysis. He's a great writer, always has, you know, really interesting things to say, uh, completely up to date on, on so many things, although it's almost <laughs> – you write something these days and boom, uh, things are changing so quickly. Uh, but uh, check it out, Schultz's take. I uh, just want to give a big shout-out to my guests for this show – I want to also say thank you to Susan Blanche, the producer for this show, uh, who does such a great job putting together not only John Williams' show, which is really fabulous, uh, and I enjoy listening to that so much, but also she does such a terrific job on this show as well. And I also want to give uh, a big shout-out to these two studio coordinators who are with me on Saturdays, as they were again tonight, Jonathan Lowe and Kevin Reed. Great to work with you guys, and have a wonderful Sunday, everyone. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 